Good morning. It is awesome to be here. And um, if you are visiting us this morning, we are a church plant. And uh, so we're a new church here in Westerville. And um, something that we've said, and there haven't been like too many awkward moments. By, I mean, by God's grace. I mean, Lauren's probably going to beat herself up for that. But honestly, that, like, by God's grace, um, we've got an awesome group of people here. And so we've been meeting in this location since December of 2020. And the Lord has continued to faithfully add to our numbers. So it is good to see some new faces. If I haven't gotten the chance to have a decently long conversation with you, then just tap my shoulder afterward when we're grabbing some food. And I'd love to, to get to know you better. Um, my name is Rob, and I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. And um, growing up, I would watch all kinds of sports movies. Loved sports movies. That was my jam. Loved playing sports growing up. And my senior year of high school, I hadn't played football up to that point, but I always wanted to play high school football. But I was really focused on baseball and thought, oh, I don't want to get injured. But I was like, this is my last year. There's no way I'm playing football after high school. So I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to go out for the team. And I got to play. So there was a, a tradition that we did where before every game, we would all kneel down, lock arms, and we'd, say the, we'd recite the Lord's Prayer together. So any of you who may have played high school football probably had a similar tradition. And so I can say from experience that we knelt down and we looked very godly in our reverence for the Lord. Our lips honored God in the way that we were speaking. But I can say with pretty strong confidence, I can at least speak for myself, that although our lips were honoring God, our hearts were far from him. I say that based off the conversations that happened leading up to that point and the things that happened afterward. So there was a unique moment there that looked very godly, but leading up to it and afterward, not so much. So throughout this passage, we will be coming across this term tradition. And a question that we have to ask ourselves is, how do we approach tradition? Is tradition a, a bad thing? Jesus seems to attack a decent amount of it right here. So we have to ask ourselves, how, how are we going to approach it? And so there's a few options we can take. Culturally speaking, we can take a progressive approach where we throw away all previous tradition and we try to find new and better ones. We can take a strictly conservative approach where we want to conserve as many traditions as possible just because it's part of our heritage. Or spiritually speaking, we can take a Roman Catholic approach, which um, I've got family members, friends who are in the Roman Catholic Church, and some of them I am convinced they are um, followers of Jesus. However, the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church says this about tradition. It says, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So they'd say, Scripture and tradition are, need to be revered equally. We can take an atheistic or agnostic approach, which just says we are going to toss any and all tradition because we just don't believe that worldview. Any, any tradition that has to do with the spiritual aspect, we're just going to toss it because we're not adopting that worldview. Or we can take Jesus's approach, as I, for, as I see it here, which advocates, I submit to you, that because God's word is our final authority, we must submit our traditions, our faith, and our practice to it. So because, I'll say it again, because God's word is our final authority, 
We must submit our traditions to it. We must submit all of our faith, all of our practice to God's word. As we look at the passage, my hope is that we'll gain a, a better understanding, a healthy understanding of tradition. I think we'll also be able to have some good established guidelines for what it looks like to pursue holiness. And there's some things that they set up here, and we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but we'll get into that as the sermon goes. And then, Lord willing, we'll also have a little bit clearer understanding of the law. We read about the law in this passage, and so um, if the Lord is kind, we will walk away with a better understanding of the law today. So if you've been with us for any amount of time, you recognize we are marching through the book of Mark, first of four Gospels, and the overall theme that we keep seeing is that it's God restoring his wayward people. We've gone astray. God's people all throughout the scriptures have gone astray. And now as we get to the Gospels, he's restoring them through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that's the consistent theme that we've been seeing. Now, up to this point, we've seen a lot of miracles taking place. He's talking with Luke, and he's like, dude, what do you do with like miracle after miracle after miracle? It almost becomes redundant. And it's true. There, there's things to be gleaned there, but... The miracles we've seen thus far have been some physical healings. We've seen Jesus walking on water. We've seen the calming of two storms, one when he's in the boat, one when he walks over to the boat. We've seen paralytics healed. We've seen a bleeding woman healed, a dead girl raised, and demons cast out. And those won't be the last miracles that we see either. But for today, we see a break in those miracles. And we see some opposition. Jesus and his disciples are by Gennesaret, and we see these Pharisees and these scribes starting to question some of the things that he's doing. And so we don't see miracles taking place right here, but it's still an important passage nonetheless. So what I hope that we'll see is that the the title of the sermon is Vain Worship. And so what hopefully we will see is that misplaced tradition leads to vain worship. Misplaced tradition leads to to vain worship. And to make that point, there are three subpoints that you'll see on your bulletin. And the first is vain worship promoted, vain worship prophesied, and then vain worship corrected. Those three points are right there. You can follow along. But before we jump in, let me pray for us. Father, we come before you grateful for the gift to be able to gather around the person and work of your son, Jesus. And we ask that you would show us clearly in the scriptures what your word says. Help us to submit to it. God, we thank you, as Luke said, for the gift to be able to gather without fear of persecution. Lord, should that day come, we pray that we would be faithful. Lord, we put before you today men and women within Westerville City Schools as this has been a a difficult year for teachers. Same for Columbus City Schools. Lord, it's been a wild year trying to figure out how to navigate COVID, how to navigate continuing to do their jobs and continuing to care for students. So we pray for your blessing on them as they come to the end of this school year. Continue to give them endurance. Continue to give them energy and wisdom. We pray for the staff here at Oakstone Academy, 
They have been a blessing to us as a congregation to allow us to meet and to gather here when so many other buildings are closed to outsiders. So Lord, thank you for their hospitality. We pray for your blessing on them. We pray for other churches in the area that are proclaiming the same gospel that we proclaim here. We're thankful that we are not the only ones who have this gospel, but there are other churches that have locked arms and are proclaiming this in our city. Think of Cornerstone down the road. Lord, think of Veritas Community Church in the short north and Summit Baptist Church in Pataskala. Thank you for their faithfulness to proclaim this gospel. We ask that as we now turn to your word, that you would give me clarity in my speech, that Holy Spirit, you would provide clarity when I fall short of that, and we ask that you would help us to take what is in your word and to live faithfully in light of it. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be here gathered around it. We pray all this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Okay, so first point in your bulletin, vain worship promoted. So title of the sermon is vain worship. All of the points say vain worship, so let's just get a little bit of a definition what is vain worship? So de- the definition for vain, it's not a Oxford Dictionary or Merriam-Webster, but looking at those, you get the general idea that vain is that which produces no result. It's useless or it's worthless. So when we say vain worship, we're saying worship that produces no result. Worship that's not pleasing to God, worship that's useless, worship that is worthless. And as followers of Jesus, gathered around the word, we want to ensure that the things that we do on a Sunday morning and throughout the week are not equivalent to worthless worship or to vain worship. So for those who have um, done any work on Microsoft Word for any period of time prior to the cloud, you recognize that there was a time where if your computer crashed in the middle of writing something, you were instantly closer to God than you had ever been because you are praying that everything's saved. And there have been instances that were just tear-jerking because you worked so hard on these things, and then the computer crashes, and all of the work that you did was in vain. All of it was worthless. It's gone. It didn't save. Wildly frustrating. Praise God for the cloud. So as we go and look at the the Pharisees and the scribes here, we're seeing what they promoted. And and Jesus points out later on in the passage, which we'll get to, that it is vain worship. So as a reminder, the Pharisees and the scribes, so we see early that they traveled a great distance here. Okay, So they're coming from Jerusalem, which to Gennesaret is approximately 90 miles. And they didn't have cars. So this is a decently long trip. And the scribes, as a reminder, are experts in the law. Experts. And Pharisees are those who practice exact observance to the law. And so they go to great lengths to ensure that they don't break a single thing in that law. It would be similar to me saying, hey, speed limit out there on State Street, 35 miles per hour. I never, ever want to break that speed limit. Therefore, I'm not going to have a car. No car, can't break the speed limit. So they would do similar things in that they would go above and beyond 
the law to ensure that they never broke the law. So now these scribes and these Pharisees, they're watching Jesus and his disciples really closely. They've traveled a long distance here to, to watch them. And they recognize, oh shoot, some of the disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. This is an issue because that seems to, to break some of, our, some of our laws. And so this, what they're upset about is not hygiene. It's not like they were worried about COVID-1 and they were trying to make sure that everybody washed their hands. They were more so concerned about purification laws and their tradition that they built around these purification laws. Where do we see this in the Old Testament? Well, in, in the Old Testament law, every person was required to do a ceremonial washing if there was any kind of bodily emission. Other than that, it was only for the priests prior to entering the tabernacle. So this law was required only for priests who were getting ready to enter into the tabernacle. Now, the Pharisees, as wonderful people as they are, they say if it's good enough for the priests, then it's good enough for everybody. And if it's good enough for entering into the tabernacle, then it should be good enough for everyday life, everything that we do. So as we look at verses 2 and 3, we read this. They, the scribes and the Pharisees, observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. So they consistently went above and beyond to ensure that they did not break this law. Now, I want to pause and say personal spiritual disciplines that you've set up for yourself to ensure that you don't sin are wonderful things. Don't hear that setting up personal legalisms in your life to ensure that you don't sin against God. Don't hear that, I'm, that that's a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. We should be adjusting our lives, recognizing areas in which we are weak, whether that's pursuing holiness, whether that's per pursuing faithfulness in the church, whether that's pursuing just godliness, recognizing the areas in which we're, where we are weak and saying, I'm weak in this area. I recognize that. I'm going to try to set up some extra guidelines for myself to ensure that I don't fall here. It's a good thing. So I want to put that out there before we go too much further. However, taking those extra things that you've set up for yourself and trusting in them to accomplish your salvation, not a good thing. That's where the hiccup is. Or imposing those things that are beyond Scripture, beyond what God has called us to, imposing them on other people, not a good thing. Good advice, maybe, depending on the situation. But if it goes past the Scriptures, then we would say, okay, if it's for your own personal holiness, we get it. However, don't trust in those things for salvation. Which leads us to our second point. Vain worship prophesied. So look with me in verse 6. So, he answered them. Jesus said, this is right after the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? Now in verse 6, Jesus answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. So just like me and my high school buddies right before high school football game, honored God with their lips, with our lips, but our hearts were far from him. He says the same thing about the Pharisees and the scribes. He says, you guys on the outside look godly. You guys are setting up all these extra rules and guidelines to ensure that you don't break the law. However, your hearts are far from me. He says that you are depending essentially on these things to be right with me. And so this quote that he gives in verse 6 and 7, it's from Isaiah 29, 13. And if you read just a few verses later to Isaiah 29, 16, we read this. You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, he didn't make me? How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? What's happening? Jesus goes to this passage in Isaiah to make the point that you guys who are making these extra laws and imposing them on other people to depend on their salvation, you guys are saying God doesn't understand what he's doing. God wrote this, but really God meant this. He wanted us to do these extra things. And so he's making the statement that what these scribes and the Pharisees are doing by imposing these extra biblical laws on others is by saying to God that we know better than you. We've set up additional boundaries that we think are better for us. And we are telling people to look to those for their salvation rather than what you have said. They're trying to create better ways to worship God. And in so doing, they're insulting God, saying that you needed to say more. So we'll say it for you. It's an insult to the Lord. In fact, it's what we see in verse 7. It's vain worship. So they worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. So why is this vain? Why is it worthless? Why does it produce no result? Because they were taking their doctrines, and their doctrines were superseding God's doctrines. And so in so doing, they were depending on man. They were revering man and man's ideas above God's. Which is exactly what they do, or what's said here in verse 8. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. So to elevate anything above God's commands, that thing that you've elevated above it is now your God. Does that make sense? So whether that's your career, whether that's your hobbies, cultural beliefs, family, spouse, kids, vacations, travel, whatever that is, if you are using that thing as an excuse to not obey God's commands, then that thing has become your God. Is that clear? And that's what's happening right here. 1 John 2, 3 says this, This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. You want to know if you, if you know God? How are you doing keeping his commands? Are you obeying the things that he has commanded for his followers to obey? Notice the term follower of Jesus. It's saying, I am following after Jesus. Jesus commands this, I'll follow in his footsteps. I will go after him. I will follow him wherever he leads me. If you take God's commands 
and you decide that you're not going to follow them, then it's impossible to call yourself a follower of Jesus. That's what John is getting at in 1 John 2, 3. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. So our response to God's commands reveals our relationship to him. So a question for us this morning, as we're gathered here in Westerville, do we honor God with lips, but in our hearts, are we finding ways to not obey his commands? We just sang songs praising God, which is beautiful. I love it, and I'm looking forward to singing more after the sermon. But are we honoring God with our lips and finding clever ways to not obey the commands that he's called us to, which is what the Pharisees did. Now, let's give the Pharisees a little bit of credit. Let's not, let's not just beat them too badly here. They were very zealous to keep God's commands. They weren't trying to find ways around them, so to speak. They were very zealous to keep them. But then in their zeal, they eventually got to the point where they felt like their added commands were really what God was after rather than the original. So they were very zealous. They were very eager. So we should give them credit there. And when we talk about tradition, I want to I say tradition is not a bad thing. Tradition, in fact, is a, is a really great thing. A lot of the things that we do today are because of the traditions of those that were before us. The reason um, that we have the confession of faith that we have today is because there were those who were before us who articulated it, passed it down. We affirm faithful creeds, confessions, even liturgies. The idea that we have an order of service where we start off with the call to worship, where from there we are reminded that we have fallen short of that worship, and then we're assured of the grace. Then we hear God's word and we ask God to help us live faithfully in it, and then we partake in the Lord's Supper. That is a, an order of service that we didn't just come up with. It was a faithful tradition handed down from Christians throughout the centuries. So we're not against tradition. I want to clarify that. However, elevating tradition to the same level as God, that's where it gets unhealthy. So all of our tradition, all of our practices, all the things that we do, faith and practice, should be subservient and should be within the bounds of Scripture. And so now, what we see Jesus interacting with these scribes and Pharisees as they're trying to impose their laws on him, saying, why don't you do these things? Why don't your disciples do these things? He interacts with them, and he says, hey, Isaiah spoke accurately of you. You guys are hypocrites. You go after your own man-made laws, and you revere those more than God's laws. And then he provides some clarification. So our third point there, vain worship corrected. So look at me in verse 9. We're going to read 9 through 12, where Jesus lays out some of the issues that he's seeing. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, 
Jesus starts off that passage. He says, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command. He's saying, you are clever. You are crafty. You are cunning. And we get that right from Genesis 3, verse 1, when the serpent is introduced to the garden. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning, or as ESV puts it, the most crafty of all the creatures in the field. The reason why sin entered into the world is because one was innovative in trying to turn God's commands and trying to, what's the term I'm looking for? Trying to persuade Adam and Eve to go against them. He was crafty. He was cunning. And Jesus is saying to these scribes and Pharisees, you're crafty. You have a fine way of invalidating God's commands. And he points out this idea of Corbin. Now, what, what is Corbin? So this idea of Corbin was an added law from the Pharisees and the scribes that said, if you want to take your time, your talents, and your treasures, and if you want to devote them to the temple, then you can do that, and then that will relieve you of the duty that you have to take care of your aging parents. Okay? So it was saying, essentially, the dichotomy that was put up was you can use your time, treasure, and talents to worship God, or you can do it to help out your parents. So they said, if you want to take all of it and just put it towards the temple, then you can do that. We'll call it Corbin, and the temple will receive more. The scribes and the Pharisees will receive more from the people. And Jesus points out, he refers to the fifth commandment. So think of the Ten Commandments, the fifth one, honor your father and mother. Now, this fifth commandment, is uniquely important because it's the first one that comes with a promise. So it goes through the commandments, get to the fifth commandment, and this command to honor your father and mother says that do this so that you may have long life in the land. It's the first command with a promise. So it's an important one. But this command to honor your father and mother was being nullified by this tradition of Corbin which allowed children to neglect their aging parents. So think through it. Today, we, don't, we have nursing homes, we have retirement communities, we have hospitals, and so an aging parent who begins to have some health issues, we can connect them with one of those places. And that may be a way that we take care of them. We connect them to there, we get them the help that they need, or perhaps you bring them into your home, whatever it is, but there are options. And that day there weren't options. If a parent was getting older and began to have some health issues, they couldn't just take them to the nursing home. There wasn't one. And so it was up to the children. It was expected in that culture that the children would repay the favor that the parents did of taking care of them when they were helpless as infants, as children, that they would repay them in their old age to take care of them when they become helpless. So where the parents took care of the helpless children, now later on as the children are growing up, the children now take care of the helpless parents. So that was the way that the society expected children to honor their father and mother. So what they ended up doing, though, was saying that rather than fulfilling that command, you can take all of that effort that you were going to do and you can devote it to the temple. And we'll call it Corbin. My, my dad, um, 
I lost him in 2015 due to cancer, but it was, he, he would have been 70 this year. And he contracted cancer and was diagnosed in 2014. And in March of 2015, he ended up passing away. Now, before he passed away, he moved in with Danielle and I, and it was a wonderful thing, but I mean, just honestly, it was very difficult as well. There were times when he couldn't make it to the bathroom and there'd be a mess and we would have to clean that up. And that was embarrassing for him. It was difficult for him to even live with us because of the embarrassment of what cancer was doing to his body. That was tough. But how much more dishonoring would it be if someone like my dad in that day had to do all of that in the public square? And Corbin was allowing that to take place. And Jesus, rightfully so, attacks this idea. He says, you are breaking the law. You have a fine way of dishonoring mother and father by acting like you're honoring God. The tradition of the Pharisees led to the breaking of God's law. So what do we do with tradition? I've already said that it's not a bad thing. Jesus himself is not saying to reject tradition. But what he is saying in verse 13, you nullify the word of God by your tradition. So Jesus is providing us with a framework. He's saying your tradition, if it nullifies the word of God, then it's dishonoring. He says your tradition must uphold the word of God. So there's, there's a, uh, there's the, putting on a theological cap right now, so follow me here. There's a term called sola scriptura, okay? Protestant churches embrace this. It's saying that we trust in the authority of scripture alone. Now, there's another term called solo scriptura, difference of one letter. Sola ends with an A, solo, think of Han Solo, ends with an O, okay? Now, Sola Scriptura, or excuse me, Solo Scriptura says that Scripture is our only authority. So Solo ends with an O, think O only. Solo Scriptura, only authority. It's dangerously individualistic. Um, you see this when folks will say things like, it's just me, my Bible, and God. And tradition in that stream of thought is an afterthought, if it's a thought at all. Now, Jason Halapalos writes this about solo scriptura. He says that it advocates a radical individualism that rejects the church, creeds, confessions, and tradition as having any authority while embracing private judgment above all else. So embracing private judgment above all else. That's solo scriptura. Now, sola scriptura, whereas solo was saying that scripture is our only authority, sola scriptura says that scripture is our final authority. Note the difference there, only versus final. Halapalos continues here, he says, sola scriptura acknowledges the authority of the church and its tradition, including creeds and confessions, but here's the key, but always as subordinate to and only as they agree with the scriptures. Solo, scripture alone. There's nothing else out there. 
sola, says scripture alone, but it has to be, um, but it has to, the creeds, confessions have to be submitted to that scripture. So we don't reject tradition, but we say that it has to be submitted to the scriptures. It's like if you think of a, a train car, I've never ridden on a train, or I have before. It's probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, but I'd love to ride on like an Amtrak across the nation. But if you think of a train, it, the front there is pulling along all these other train cars. So think of the front as scripture and the train cars as traditions. So long as those train cars are tethered to scripture, they follow along just fine. But where they come undone, they're no longer moving in the same direction. So Colossians 2.8 gives us some wisdom here. It says that be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than Christ. So it says, don't let anyone take you captive by human tradition rather than Christ. If it doesn't, Christ being the word incarnate, if it doesn't submit itself to the word, then reject it. Colossians 2.22, just later on in that chapter, says all these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. These human commands and doctrines are destined to perish but the word of God remains forever. So Jesus corrects their vain worship by providing the right lanes to view their traditions. And it's that scripture must not nullify the word of God. And so some of the disciples there didn't wash their hands. They didn't follow this tradition, this tradition of after going to the marketplace, they do a ceremonial cleansing. They didn't follow that before eating. Why? Because the word of God did not require it. It was an added in law. They were living out Psalm 119, verses 99 through 100, which says, I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees, your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders, because I obey your precepts. The disciples didn't wash their hands because they were with the word incarnate. And their understanding was greater than that of the teachers in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees. J.C. Ryle says this about what's happening here, because what's ultimately happening, if we elevate the commands of man above the commands of God, then what's happening is self-righteousness. Saying, I can acquire righteousness by fulfilling these things that are outside of the lines of scripture. So it's, it's terrible self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness just put on display. And J.C. Ryle says this about it. He says, beware of self-righteousness in every possible shape and form. Some people get as much harm from their virtues as others do from their sins. Some people get as much harm from their quote-unquote virtues as others do from their sins. So, because God's word is our final authority, we must submit our traditions, we must submit all of our faith and practice to it. So, as we go from here, some questions for us to consider. What similar things, because at the end of verse 13, after Jesus says, so that they nullify the word of God by tradition. He says, and you do many other similar 
things. So what similar things could we potentially be doing without realizing it? What are some similar things that could be keeping us from the word of God? Because maybe in our zeal, we're trying to live faithfully in light of it. We need to do a self-examination. Another question is, are there ways you have nullified the word of God by your own tradition? So on Friday, a handful of us got to, to gather for a secret church. And the topic was the great imbalance. And what was being taught was that here's this, this command, this specific command to go into all nations, to make disciples of all nations. Not just make disciples, but Jesus specifically says of all nations. And we, in our desire to see some kind of ROI, tend to put our efforts and our funds and our resources in areas where we'll see more ROI, return on investment. Now, if you think about it, you'll see a greater ROI if you invest in areas that are already Christianized, where there are already Christians. You want to plant a church in a place where there's 100 Christians, you may get a few of those Christians to attend that church. If you plant a church in a country where there are zero Christians, it might be a decade before you have two Christians show up at that church. It feels like you get greater ROI if you go to a Christianized place, but the command was to go to all nations. And so the ROI might seem like it's less. And in our zeal to go into all nations, sometimes we can put on the lens of ROI and we can end up nullifying the command to go to all nations because some of those are harder. It's just one example, but there are various other ways that we can nullify in our desire to follow God and to submit to his word. We can nullify his word because we've put in place other ways to accomplish this. And then last question is, are you trusting in your own righteousness for spiritual purification or are you trusting in Christ? Spurgeon says the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. What was happening here with the Pharisees and the scribes is that they looked to themselves to acquire their salvation. And then they imposed those laws on others. And what Jesus is saying is that in your zeal, you have nullified what I've already said. He says, go back to the basics. Here's the truth. The scribes and the Pharisees were trying to keep the law. And because they recognized that they could not keep the law, they created additional man-made laws to make them feel better about keeping those. But the truth is, we have all fallen short of God's law. The Pharisees, the scribes, the disciples, us, We've fallen short of God's law. God's law reflects his holiness. It's a wonderful thing. It shows us how sinful we are. It shows us that we are in need of a savior. And it's helpful to guide our lives when it comes to moral practices. We don't say that the Ten Commandments are something that we throw out. They're still helpful. We still shouldn't commit adultery. We still shouldn't lie or steal. still shouldn't murder. Those are wonderful things. The, the law is a good thing. However, it reveals that we have fallen short. 
it reveals that we need a Savior. And instead of looking to the Savior, the Pharisees and the scribes were creating more laws to say, oh, well, maybe we can keep it this way. And because we're keeping our man-made laws, uh, we, we feel good. We feel self-righteous. The truth is we've all fallen short of that. And oftentimes our guilty conscience tries to create our own new laws to make us feel better. However, God's laws have not passed away. And the good news, the amazing news is this, that Jesus himself said that don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus has fulfilled the law that you feel and understand that you've fallen short of. Jesus has fulfilled it. And for all who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus' perfect fulfillment of the law to have a right standing with God, that perfect righteousness that Jesus has acquired can be yours. The New Testament consistently talks about being adopted into Christ. If Christ has this perfect righteousness that he has secured and you are in Christ, then when the Father looks on you, he sees perfect righteousness because you are in the Son. Jesus' righteousness, the perfect righteousness that is required to have communion with the Father, can be yours. Turn from self-righteousness, from your own abilities to live in a way that you feel like merits salvation and depend entirely on Christ's righteousness. It is finished. You don't need to work for your salvation. Trust in Christ's finished work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness to provide a savior, to provide your son. Thank you, Jesus, for accomplishing the work on our behalf. Help us to remember that the work is finished, that we don't need to create man-made laws to feel self-righteous, to be made right with you. But the perfect and holy law has been perfectly fulfilled by the Holy One. Thank you for doing that, Jesus. Holy Spirit, remind us of it and help us to live faithfully in light of it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.